Good morning, everyone. They didn't put this thing on me backwards or anything, did they? They tried to embarrass me? Okay. If you want to be turning to our passage today, it's in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Uh, I appreciate all the folks who advised me that they would be praying for me as we prepared. I, it is always a humbling thing to teach to open, to share the Word of God in any form. So it's not taken lightly. Um, today's sermon is the church as it ought to love. Uh, you probably notice it's similar to Dave's sermon last week, the church as it ought to be. I thought, this is what I'm studying. That's appropriate because I'm, I'm looking at the church again. The Lord's continuing to point us to the church itself. And in this case, these scriptures, it's, he's aiming directly at the... the um, the love aspect of it. There's lots of sermons that could come from this passage, but this is what he's directed my heart towards in this particular sermon. It was probably about three months ago this passage was laid on my heart, and then, I don't know, maybe a month ago, Dave asked in one of our elders' meetings if uh, I would be interested in preaching one of those Sundays he was going to be traveling, and I, I knew what that passage was then for, so uh, here we are today. Um, we're going to do a little summary before we actually uh, read the passage, and we'll, we'll stand when we read the passage, as we've become accustomed to doing, uh, but I'd like to summarize it first so we get our context and an understanding of where we're at, because we're jumping in the fourth book, uh, the fourth chapter of the book, so we need to have a little summary beforehand. Uh, and as we start, if you could pray with me as we open this word. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the message that you have in it for us, for all the message. And Lord, specifically today's message, we pray that you would open our hearts, that we would hear exactly what you're wanting to communicate to us, that we will hear it clearly, and that we'll respond accordingly. That pray that you'll help me to get out of your way. You'll help all of us to, to get out of your Holy Spirit's way, and that, uh, that you would be pleased that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted in and through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as your turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, a little bit of summary. 1 Peter is written to provide encouragement to suffering and oppressed believers in northern Asia Minor. They were facing intense persecution. This area is commonly known to us as modern-day Turkey. These believers are referred to throughout the book as sojourners, exiles, elect exiles, temporary residents, strangers in the land, and aliens. The letter was meant to encourage faithfulness in these believers while they're under this oppression. It encouraged them as God's people to live holy, distinctive lifestyles as temporary residents in this foreign land. It was to remind them that though they will suffer with, with Christ in this world, they should remember that heaven is their eventual destination. The book continues to speak to believers for the same reason today. The theme of suffering appears throughout 1 Peter. There's discussion of it in each chapter. Does that mean that since suffering was such an extensive theme to these recipients, that doesn't apply to us today? Absolutely not. It applies to us today. The letter was written to encourage these believers while they're, while they're experiencing the suffering. 
but it also was written to encourage them to be faithful, to lead distinctive holy lifestyles while considering themselves in a foreign land. So might that apply to us today? Absolutely. All the more in our days of suffering, which are going to come. It was encouragement for their journey on their way to their eternal home, and it's encouragement for ours on our journey. The letter could be safely divided into three sections. The first section focuses on their precious salvation, and it starts with chapter 1-1, and it goes to 2-10. You'll hear things in that first section, such as, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The second section could be titled or could be in the area of focusing on their present situation. It would be from chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 6. You'll hear things addressing their right where they're at on a daily basis, such as uh, abstaining from various passions, being submissive to authorities, keeping their conduct honorable. It addresses multiple relationships, including their, their master-employer relationship, husband and wife, all kinds of things that they're every day dealing with. And then the last section focuses on the Lord's personal return. It would be chapter 4-7, where we're picking up today, through 5-11. And it addresses for them how to successfully complete this journey as strangers together in this foreign land and provides them specific details of what will be required. This is where we pick it up. This is where we read the text. So if we could stand for just a moment. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. So Peter's transitioning from describing their salvation, reminding them of that precious salvation, detailing things that they need to know that apply to them on a daily basis for things that they're wrestling with, Transitions in chapter 4, verse 1, to telling these believers to arm themselves in the same way of thinking as that that Christ had. And he's exhorting them with this truth today, starting in verse 7. It comes right out of the gate with, the end of all things is at hand. This is the incentive. The incentive for all the other things he's been talking about. The end in sight. These this is, was meant to these believers to be 
keep driving on for this reason. The end word here in Greek is telos. It's the end term of a goal or a directed process. It always has the idea of consummation, a goal achieved, a result obtained. Not the end, but the peak or culmination period. It's in here, it's referring to the return of Christ. An example of, of a similar usage that we can understand today. If, if I told you that all things related to the pastor search committee process are at hand. We identify with that, right? We, we know we're approaching a point where all this work of the pastor search committee process is coming to a peak, and we're at that peak. We all, we all understand what that means. This, the culmination of the process is upon us. Well, that's what he's referring to. It's, it's that peak that it was upon believers, and he's exhorting them to re- be remembering that fact. But the peak is not the entire picture. It's not the entire story or the entire process. It's the, the end of the age that they were dealing with at that time. Our bigger picture in our church setting, if we go back to this pastor search committee process that we're thinking about, would be that we have a 77-year church history prior to this. We have now that we're, we're looking for this peak time in our pastor search committee process, and then we have where we're going from this point on. He's saying the same thing. So when he says the end of all things is near, he means that there's nothing hindering the Lord's return. In Greek, it means it's about to arrive, it's imminent, it is near. This is not the first mention or exhortation for them to live with a certain expectancy. In the same book, if you look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7, this passage was discussed regarding our precious salvation, and it stated there. They're exhorted regarding their inheritance kept in heaven for them, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what he's referring to. He keeps pointing them back to that. 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Same focus constantly. Chapter 4, just a little bit beyond where we're at today. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Constant words meaning the same thing. First Peter was sharing a message that was a common one for believers. They understood what he was talking about, that what he was referring to. But it's not just in First Peter that believers were hearing this message. This was encouragement to live with expectancy It was common among these believers. You'll hear the same type message in other books. We won't have to turn there for time's sake, but I'm going to hit some of the words in these books and chapters. And if you want to write these references down, absolutely look at them later. I highly encourage you to do it. Romans 13, 11 and 12 states and uses the phrases that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. The day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 1 Corinthians 7.29, this is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. 1 Thessalonians 4.15, the coming of the Lord. And then at the end of this passage, therefore encourage one another with these words. James 5.7-9, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
I'm skipping a lot of words, but the, the, the words are in here. The coming of the Lord is at hand. The judge is standing at the door. You constantly hear this message. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. We've been using this passage a lot in our discipleship class. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Very common message, very common truth that all of these believers were hearing from these writers. And Peter was reminding and encouraging and exhorting these believers the same thing we need to be reminded of today. Jesus is coming in the last days, and we, we're now in those last days. We are there. The last days began with the first coming of Jesus. 1 John 2.18 Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. 2 Timothy 3.1 But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Difficult times came upon these disciples. They came upon these believers when Christ came the first time. That's the very reason they're suffering persecution. 1 Peter 1.20 He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Every day that was passing was a guarantee for these disciples that his coming that day was coming closer. What Peter was telling these believers and what God is telling us today is about the consummation of the ages. At the end of one age, Christ came. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. At the start of the next age, Christ began building that kingdom. As Hebrews, that kingdom among believers, as Hebrews 9, 26, 28 refers to. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as he is appointed once for, for man to die, and after comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Peter's reminding them, the end of all things is near, it's at hand. And then he says, therefore, and any time there's a therefore, you have to find out what it's there for. We all know that, right? So what, the end of all things is near. Therefore, whatever's coming next is important. He's talking about we have to be about something. Since this is coming, what is it we're going to be about? Well, you're going to be about being serious. You're going to be sober-minded. Some of your versions would say disciplined or self-controlled. Next question would be why? Why, why all this? For the sake of your prayers. It says in the same sentence in verse 7, In regards to the return of Christ and his, that day approaching, prayer is going to be instrumental. In order for, for believers to be serious and sober-minded and remain serious and sober-minded, they'll need serious prayer. Why? Because our tendency. Our tendency will be to get comfortable here. 
Our tendency will be to relax, to settle in. Our tendency would to question any urgency. What's the hurry? What's the big deal? After all, I have these things I really need to focus on. Our, quest, our tendency would be to get wrapped up in the things here and begin pursuing them. And that's the opposite of what these believers are being told. Our prayer life, their prayer life, should be seriously affected by this truth that he's laid out for them. Just before this in 1 Peter 4, verses 2 and 3, He's telling them about being serious. He writes, So as to live for the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Again, same exhortation in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Serious words, war against your soul. In other words, the end is near. Therefore, live self-controlled, not flesh-controlled. Live serious, sober-minded, not pleasure-minded. In order for them to do that, prayer was going to be vital. Verse 8. After just being told about the end being near, the need for serious prayer, he tells them, above all, and above all things, all the items that I'm talking about enlisting here, and the Greek word there, it means in front of all these things we're talking about. This, this tells us again, whatever's coming next just took top of the list. First priority. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That's ESB. HCSB would say maintain an intense love for each other. NASB, keep fervent in your love for one another. This love, the word that's used in each one of these, is agape. It means benevolence, goodwill, focuses on a preference, and it's described as being fervent, intense, and earnest. These particular words together indicate a love that's to be unceasing, intense, and strenuous in activity. The sentence also indicates they already have a love for one another. They're told, to maintain it, to keep it, not to take it lightly. Again, the the type of love meaning goodwill and benevolence, it's a common meaning it was, was and still means serving a charitable purpose rather than a profit-making purpose or self. Your King James Bibles would use the word charity there if you have that. This would commonly mean to them love without anything in return, love regardless of the benefit, Or in spite of no benefit. Love in spite of the response. If you and I take something to a charitable cause or go feed the hungry. Or if we we give something to someone as a cause of charity. We don't stand there and ask for something in return, do we? No. We're giving it. That's what he's talking about. It's not about us. It involves being stretched. Having tension. Completely taut or pulled tight. And at maximum potential. Do you think these Christians always found it easy to love each other? They're not like us today, are they? (laughs) You know I'm joking. Are there times when fellow believers can be difficult? Especially to love them with an intense, fervent love? Absolutely. And regards to the words keep or maintain this kind of love, 
If I told you, and here's just some small examples about the idea of keeping and maintaining this kind of love. If you're driving us from here to Florida, which would be nice if we were going to Florida, but if you were driving us from here to Florida and I told you you have to maintain your car at 55 miles an hour, there's going to be some effort on your behalf to have to maintain. If I told you that you have to maintain this amount of money in your savings account, oh, goodness. That's going to take some adjustment. That's going to take some work. If I told you you had to maintain a diet of 3,000 calories a day, you get the picture. If I told you you're going to have to exercise an hour a day, four days a week, you've got to maintain that. Oh, boy, you're getting legalistic on me now. No, just, I'm using an example of the idea of maintaining in small pictures that I just utilized help us understand there's going to be effort involved in this. He's not telling them something that's just, oh yeah, I'll, do, I'll take care of that. I, I agree, I'll do that. He's telling them something that's going to take constant effort. Peter's telling them to maintain a preferred love for their brothers and sisters that is intentional, intense, with goodwill, regardless of anything in return. We're to live with the love from which we have been loved by Christ. As he tells us, as Christ loved us, so we're to love one another. Christ's love continues to us and through us as his children, regardless if it's reciprocated by another. His love is continuing to us. Our efforts of love on our level alone cannot achieve what only his can. My love for you is not dependent on how much you return back to me. My love for you is dependent on His love continuing to flow. So it is with yours. The easiest way we can identify with this is probably with our kids. Might our kids periodically get a little upset with us and not act like they love us too much? Does that lessen our love for them at all? No. Doesn't touch it, does it? In fact, it makes us pray for them all the harder, doesn't it? It makes us dig in for them because we see what's going on with them. That's what he's talking about here. Why this kind of love? Well, verse 8. Because or since love covers a multitude of sins. This kind of love is the only type. It is the type that only God provides and works through to bring people back from, away from, a multitude of sins. And yes, he involves believers in this process. The Greek word covers, when talking about covering a multitude of sins, means repeatedly forgives a multitude of sins. It keeps, keeps hidden, not for the purpose of hiding sins, but for the purpose of the forgiving. It envelops that person, envelops that sin, it encapsulates it, wraps it up. He's instructing them in the light of the, the end being near. And since we're being serious-minded, there's going to be a lot of things we need to be forgiving about. With the love God provides, we use that to wrap up the wrongs for our, of our brothers and sisters. We forgive and go. Time is too short to hold on to these wrongs. It's too short to focus on them and stew over them. And it keeps dragging us down, and it keeps us from keeping the big picture in our mind that he's instructing us about. Now, does that mean that we look over all things? No. We still have Scripture that teaches us there are times when we admonish one another. There's times when we have to biblically confront people and address those items. 
But we address them biblically. The Word provides clear instruction in those areas of how we're to walk through this. And our purpose is for restoring that believer, restoring back to fellowship with ourselves and restoring their relationship with God as it should be. But it's that same love for brothers. This kind of love covers, as it's said in the Word. Not, not uncovers. Notice he used the word cover. Care must be given by us with one another. Believers, we can easily fall back and start thinking, I'm going to uncover this in my brother or sister. We focus on the sin of another brother or sister, and we start talking about that. We start spreading that. We start thinking, don't you see what I see? Don't. We're not to be in the uncovering business. This love is talking about covering. This kind of love stands ready to forgive repeatedly and expresses itself in all the items that are getting ready to follow in the next verses, starting in verse 9. Remember, these things in, in the rest of the way here flow from this kind of love, and they won't flow properly without this kind of love. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another. That means cheerfully share, including the home. It was common for believers when they would, when they would travel to need a place to lodge, they would need some, someone to eat with. Believers were to be that connection for one another. Believers in these days understood what it meant if you identified as a believer as well. It was not popular and easily to, easy to mix in with their societies at these times. So they had to rely on each other. They knew what their belief could cost them. There's a potential cost and they knew rejection was common. The church was meant to be a different exhibition of grace than than the world's used to. Believers had work, they had employment, they had things they did, they had inter interactions with other people, but their relationships with believers were designed to be their preference, their preference for their focus. They were to be hospitable, as we're in verse 9, hospitable, but to do so without grumbling or murmuring. To be grumbling or murmuring towards a brother or sister meant that we're really focused on our love for self over our love for an for our brother and sister. Verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength which God supplies. Notice the gifts are not supplied to serve self or self-interest. That's that can easily and commonly be recognized in believers when we have some form of insistence that I use my gift, a requirement or a demand that we're able to use it. That's a self-interest. These gifts are other-oriented. They're for the purpose that in all things God may be glorified. We, have it, we all have at least one spiritual gift. We're expected to use to serve one another. We see here two kinds of gifts mentioned. They're not... Normally, what you'd think in the spiritual gift category, well, there's a reason. These are, these are encompassing categories of gifts, and he, they're termed speaking and serving. Uh, none of us can biblically say, I don't have the gift to speak. Uh, that's not me. I'm not for speaking. I, I don't have that gift, because we're all told to be, we shall be his witnesses. We have to be witnesses. And none of us can biblically say, I don't have the gift of serve. Uh, that's for somebody else to be serving people. That's not biblical. That's, that's why he refers to us in verse 10 as 
stewards. We're all entrusted. We each have these abilities to speak and to serve one another. So it's when, not if we speak. We're to speak intentionally, and those intentional words are to be words of God, things that he would be saying to a brother and sister. His words are applied to what we speak. His words determine what we say. His words determine what we don't say, what we determine to withhold. Our serving, not if we serve, should be from a strength provided from God. Our strength should be used for His purposes. Also, it does not address our expectation of getting served. The focus should never be on self. So how is this going to be accomplished? Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 again. Just a bit before this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the human passions, but for the will of God. And what is the will of God? The will of God is that they believe in what he's saying about his return. Their need for serious prayer. To acknowledge that the time is past for them to partake of that which the Gentiles are pursuing. The will of God is that they, above all, maintain a fervent love for one another. The will of God is that they take him at his word and that they're serious about it. That's the will of God. So, as stewards, we are appointed as stewards of his grace. We carry these varied forms of grace as, as extensions of his love toward us. That which he expressed to us, we express to them. Not based upon whether another believer returns it or not. We carry it out in obedience as extensions because his love continues to flow through us. The grace talked about in Greek is referring to God freely extending himself. In this case, it refers to as through us. The varied grace mentioned is defined as a gift brought to man by Jesus Christ. Its applied meaning is God reaching or inclining to people because he's disposed to bless them or be near them. That's where we come in. That's where we're expect, expected to be is right there. To literally become the grace to one another. To simply take him at his word, follow the rest of his instruction, and be willing to turn loose of the things that so easily entangle us in this sojourning process. The covering of a multitude of sins that we spoke about a moment ago is a work accomplished by God's grace in us. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We're not in the sin-covering business. He is. It's by His grace we're initially forgiven, and it's by His grace we can repeatedly forgive. All this instruction from Peter was encouragement to them, ultimately for one reason that you see in verse 11. Actually, the second half of verse 11. In order that, or so that, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, because to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So even the living out of these encouraging instructions was not to become about these believers. The purpose of it was not to be about them. They would bear fruit. There would be much fruit. Their lives would be so much richer by the living of this out. But their purpose was that God would be seen among them to the, by the world around them. 
He wanted to be, he designed it so the world sees him at work in and through people, accomplishing things that only he can do. So let's ask ourselves, let's go to application a bit, take what we see in the scripture and ask ourselves some questions. One is, have to start right off the gate. Are we willing to take God at his word today? Do I understand that I am an exile? I am a sojourner. I'm a temporary resident. And so are we if we're believers. Do I understand that I'm living in the last days? And am I living serious about that? Are we tending to think that we may have our, have our 80 years? And that's a long time. And I, I believe in Jesus and I'll coast the rest of the way at a comfortable pace, me and him, as we go. We don't need to make the mistake of thinking that we're walking with Jesus and then ignoring part of his word that we don't particularly care for. He wants us to hear all of it. I, I remember the last days of my dad's life. He was 83 when he was dying. And in the last week, he told me, he said, son, it doesn't matter how long you live. It goes like that. And I'll never forget that last snap of his finger. It drove a point home. We tend to think so limited from this world's view, viewpoint. But the God who has called us told us truth when he says, the end is near. We need to realize that our 80 years are passing quickly, even from our viewpoint. Our God is looking from his viewpoint, from eternity into 80 years. The 80 years of your life, if you're granted 80 years. And he says, it's coming quick. And there's only one appropriate response to that. Are we willing to grow in our seriousness, our sober-mindedness in light of the truth, and allow this to drive us to prayer, to be more focused of what we're here for? Are we willing to take him at his word and maintain, above all, a fervent love for one another? It may be we, we have to establish that fervent love with one another before we maintain it, but whichever is applicable. Are we being intentional in our speaking? Are we making sure that the words we speak to one another are in fact words that God is saying, not things we think we need to say to Him? We, we've got to understand that our words apart from Him will accomplish nothing of internal, internal significance. And do we realize that this kind of love will at times be strenuous? It will stretch us to the max at times. Not everyone's easy to love at all times. Have we decided we're going to love each other anyway? We are to be intentional about our purpose here. That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because to Him belongs the glory of why He redeemed you and I. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word this morning. We commit it to you. We thank you for teaching us truth. We pray that you'll help us to understand the, and sink it into us as your stewards of your good grace, of how we are to apply it, how it's to be carried out with one another. Lord, in all our inadequacy, may you work, move, live among us, express your love to us through one another. Help us to take you at your word, to relinquish the holds we have here that we tend to want to hold things on this earth so tight and this 
Help us to see ourselves in the foreign land that you see us in. And help us to fix our eyes on you, the author of our faith, the finisher of our faith. And help us to complete our journey well. In Jesus' name, amen.